Sav. Mark! Mark! He's wired in. Sorry? He's wired in. Is he? Yes. How about now? You're still wired in? Welcome to Peak Show, scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and her fuck you flip-flops. Who do I have with me here today? I'm a left-brain word fetishist, Mint Marcellus. Welcome back to the show, Mint. You are a two-peat guest. You were last with us, well, technically on the season one finale, but you also joined us in season one for our very underrated, in my opinion, discussion of Saw. Um, and today we're bringing you the second filmmaker episode of season two. We're talking about one of my favorite directors, David Fincher. And that's a bit of a basic film bro opinion of mine, but the guy's been at it for 30 years. He's done movies, he's done TV, he's done commercials and music videos, So, and he's worked across so many genres. But Mint, I understand that your work in the field of Fincher goes beyond just being a fan. So can you tell me about the course that you will be teaching uh, that largely features Fincher? Yeah, uh, this summer, as long as enough students register for it, you know, fingers crossed, I'm getting to teach a course on film and authorship at Innis College. We're going to focus on David Fincher and Karen Kusama and Carl Franklin as three directors, all focused uh, in and around the crime genre. Um, the organizing principle for the course is actually based in a quote from the second episode of Mindhunter. <laughs> Holden has just interviewed Ed Kemper, and when we cut to Holden in a car with Bill, Bill says, his oeuvre, what the fuck, he's Stanley Cooper? <laughs> Um, and that, that is the organizing principle for the course that authorship and murder have something in common. Oh, that, that sounds so cool. I might, oof. it makes me miss, uh, being an undergraduate. Cause I'm like, I want to take that class. Um, well, so normally with our intros, we, we do the peak moments and, uh, mint as, uh, as I've said, you kind of became the template for the peak moments because your amazing story about your, uh, kind of drunken OC lecture did set the template. But, um, I'm wondering if you have any other moments that you wanted to share with us that are peak mint. Yeah. I mean, it feels like anything I say here will just be a disappointment because that OC story is, no. is great. Um, but, for listeners to have a sense of the kind of obnoxious film snob that I am, and to understand just how much I love the social network. The final <laughs> paper I wrote as a university student, like the last term of my coursework in my PhD, was about reading Aaron Sorkin as no tour. It's actually a little less cringy than it sounds when you know the context of it, <laughs> but it will always just be peak me that I finished, I was able to finish with writing a paper on Sorkin, who's a, you know, a screenwriter I have a, a complicated relationship with, but I also can't deny that I love his work. I mean, this is not an Aaron Sorkin podcast, but I'll say that uh, when we get to our social network section, I might have a little bit to say about Aaron Sorkin and the rap that I feel he's gotten. Um, but I will, I will show an uncharacteristic amount of restraint right now. <laughs> but before we dive into the history of Mr. David Andrew Leo Fincher, what a white guy name, um, we want to get into your history with Fincher and his movie. So you, can you tell me about when you became aware of him as a filmmaker and how closely you followed his career and how you've evolved with it? Yeah, uh, I got into Fincher as a teenager with Fight Club. Um, it, you know, it's impossible not to see that movie as a teen, especially in the kind of stoner yeah. crowd I was hanging around with. <laughs> but around the same time, I saw Seven, 
because it was a movie that my dad just thought was great. And like, I agreed, um, though I've only grown to appreciate it more over time. But the moment I really became a Fincher fan was when The Social Network dropped in 2010. I saw it in theaters and it was like genuinely a spiritual experience. It's my favorite movie. It uh, And it has been for a long time now. I didn't know that movies could be like that, look like that, sound like that. Um, and I just think that Fincher's been riding a high ever since The Social Network. Um, mm-hmm. Each new film of his I've seen in theaters, except for Mank, which wasn't in theaters. Yeah. Um, but the... This is all to say I can't be objective about Fincher. I am too I am too, in too deep with this guy and the more I see his stuff the more I want to talk about it. I mean, we just recorded an episode uh on Taylor Swift with Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud, so um I don't think you have to worry about objectivity because that was just a big love fest that episode. So um and um For me, it was a little bit earlier. Um, I saw the movie Seven when I was nine. (laughs) I still can't believe that. That is such a, that is so young. (sighs) I mean, okay. So I think throughout this, uh, throughout this series, I revealed that I saw Scream when I was six and uh, like saw The Shining when I was eight uh, and saw The Sixth Sense when it came out, which was when I was nine or 10, like, and it it makes it sound like my parents were either super progressive or super neglectful, and they were neither. It was more that they're just like, yeah, she's fine. Like, <laughs> I don't think they thought I knew what was going on. But in the case of Seven, um, I watched at my friend Allie's house because her brother had rented it. So I don't think my parents actually knew that I watched Seven. But like... I honestly remember thinking, like, at the time, that was the era when, like, there was a lot of, like inside the ER surgery shows on network TV and stuff. And so like, I remember thinking like, this isn't even as gross as that. So like my parents couldn't be mad. Um, Now I did watch it a second time as a teen because I tried to remember how I felt about Seven. And I remember thinking like, it's weird. Like this is a scary movie, like, you know, Scream and stuff like that. But I'm not actually like, I'm not watching any murders. And so that was different for me. And um, also, like, I think at that point, I already, like, knew who Morgan Freeman was and stuff. And so I was like, he's so cool. Um, but so I watched it um, a little later as a teen with a, a boy that was trying to woo me. And um, actually, the other DVD that he brought home that night was Saw. Oh, God. Those northern boys. My God. I didn't like him very much, but I liked that movie. Um, but like when I actually, so that's the first time actually paying attention to it. And I was like, oh, that's the Fight Club guy who directed it. And you know, realizing, oh, so he works with Brad Pitt sometimes. So that was when I decided actively I was going to pay attention to him. And um, the next thing I watched from him was actually Zodiac. And like my basic bitch bragging right is that I liked that movie right away. And I don't want to say like everyone retroactively decided it was good because it was well received at the time. But like, that's the movie that it felt like it took everyone 10 years to come around to. Like, It's true. Like at least three, like I remember um, at the end of the decade when there were, when end of the decade lists were coming and it was Ooh. like Metacritic's, like it was in the top five on Metacritic's end of the decade list, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was, I remember um, the movie like websites at the time being like, where, where is this coming from? Like it was kind of surprising <laughs> because it didn't do that well at the box office and it was critically regarded, but like that high. Um, 
but over time it's just gotten it's it's gotten to the point where i think it's almost a little overrated but that's uh i well it's not without its problems i will say though on like two things with um with zodiac is i think that movie actually really defined jake gyllenhaal's career and like was a really great transition movie for him because that was exactly what made him a good fit for like helped him transition to like the few films he's done with villeneuve and stuff um i also like looking back and i'm just like Man, 2007 was such a great year at the movies. You had that, you have No Country, you have There Will Be Blood, you have I Know Who Killed Me. <laughs> um, sorry, I always have to throw that one in because that is one of the worst movies of all time, let alone 2007. But uh... <laughs> but so great, but so much fun to watch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, my obsession with Fincher followed well into university. Yeah, Social Network and then Dragon Tattoo was such like a one-two punch for me. I will admit I haven't loved everything he's done right away, but I've always like, he's a director I will always make time for because I'm always like, oh, I can't wait to see what he does with this. I can't wait to see what he does like with the biopic genre and stuff. So I like the way he places a signature on everything without being too blatant about it. So that's why I thought he would be a really fun director to do for Peak Show. Yeah, absolutely. He's... um he doesn't have the same like you know a fincher film when you see it mm-hmm. but it's also not as blatant as like a tarantino or a Shyamalan, where it's um wh- where the fact that you can recognize it is also a bad thing yes. with fincher it's just like oh like th- this is this is and this is true fincher it's not like knockoff fincher like we had with saw <laughs> where saw is absolutely trying to do the seven thing a little bit um and yeah it, it's you know that you're you know you're not going to be uh immediately disappointed yeah. when you when you notice it's like this is a fincher gig yeah and i'm also i'm also thinking like you know we talk about knockoff fincher with saw and it's like can you actually do knockoff fincher because i think a lot of people are mistaken into like thinking that fincher is an aesthetic guy and like yeah he does have like certain visual styles and stuff but i i think there's so much more than visuals and aesthetics with Fincher. Um, he's so a thematic guy. And I'm trying to think of like movies that I've been mistaken to think like this could pass as a David Fincher movie. And one of the only positive examples is I sometimes Mandela affect myself into thinking that the film version of We Need to Talk About Kevin is a Fincher movie because it has Fincher vibes. Interesting. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. I can I can absolutely see that. Ironically, also scored by a former 90s rock star. Who scored that one? Johnny Greenwood. Oh, that's a that's a Greenwood. Yeah, okay. I yeah, actually no, I hate totally his score in it. I hate it. But yeah, we're not talking about Johnny Greenwood here. For more about Johnny Greenwood, listen to my Radiohead episode. <laughs> Um, so born in Colorado in 1962 to a nurse and a journalist, David Fincher was raised in California and Oregon. And I learned just from Wikipedia that he was neighbors with George Lucas, which I think is kind of cute. And so he was obsessed with making movies from a young age, got his first camera at age eight and jumped pretty much right into the industry after high school. It doesn't look like he did post-secondary in film or film studies, which... No. I think that's cool, you know? I mean, I... I, Oh, I just shat all over your existence, but... But you're not not trying to be a filmmaker, so... 
exactly yeah. that's the thing i i i like the division of of uh of responsibilities between critics and scholars and filmmakers i yeah i i like what uh i like that fincher like got didn't and didn't get right into the industry like he he worked small jobs for his first few years after high school mm-hmm. and like that's it's like good he he knows what it's like to to work in a restaurant for instance and it's like because i feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of rich filmmakers that probably don't and i we're going to talk about uh working with collaborators mm-hmm. and i i think that the like the difference between fincher and uh, some other filmmakers is well he's he's demanding mm-hmm. he also understands the responsibility he has to the people working for him yeah. and that's a big difference yeah um and so age of 21 one of those jobs he worked which like again i love this he was he was hired by industrial light and magic um you know not just legendary because of the george lucas factor but like on a personal note like um, my husband has often shared because he was born in 73. You know, he saw, I think, the original Star Wars, uh, but for sure Empire in the theaters and Industrial Light and Magic and becoming obsessed with uh, with ILM was what made him become a graphic artist turned IT guy. So like, um, I love that, you know, he and Fincher were inspired by uh, by the same company. He only worked there for a year though before uh, he made the move to commercial music and uh, commercial music video directing under the banner of Propaganda Films. Uh, this one I didn't know that Propaganda alumni include Michael Bay, uh, Michelle Gondry, Gore Verbinski, and Zack Snyder, baby. <laughs> I mean, just like kind of uh, every uh, like I said, basic bitch white male director. Tim <laughs> Gondry, I love Gondry. Well, and actually, no, I I do adore Gore Verbinski. And I I am a def- I'm a defender of all four of these men, uh, like to different degrees. But like I I am I I love what I, I love Snyder's movies as much as he's a libertarian. Uh, his politics I don't agree with, but like again, he he from all we got out of the the Justice League saga, mm-hmm. we know that he's actually like good to the people he works with, unlike the uh unlike some other directors who shall remain nameless yes um so uh fincher some of fincher's most notable music videos include madonna's vogue aerosmith's jamie's got a gun and uh over about a decade he directed 53 music videos in total he got his break in features when he was hired as a replacement director on alien 3 which he has since disowned because it was perceived as a failure it was a very troubled production uh, and he returned to commercials and music videos. I, I have to say, I I obviously knew that Alien 3 was a David Fincher movie, but I didn't know when I saw it. And I haven't gone back to look at it recently. Like, I, I haven't gone back to look at it as a quote-unquote David Fincher movie. But I have. It works as one. Uh-huh. And... Uh... We'll, we'll get to, we'll talk about that later. I'll Super. let you keep with the history. Yeah. So um, then he was, uh, he hopped into the director's seat with seven critical and commercial success, 320 million worldwide gross, which I think, uh, you know, that really tips the scales in terms of R-rated movies. And he followed up with the slightly less commercially successful The Game, another Andrew Kevin Walker collaboration. I love The Game. Um, I don't love it as much as I love Seven, but I really love The Game. Um, yeah, I, seven is my, my ride or die from that era of Fincher, but like I rewatched the game recently and the thing about the game, like Fincher's always going to surprise you. Like if, if the game is the film that you haven't watched recently of his, go back to it 
and think about it as um, a movie about a rich man that is forced to interact with poor people. And that's the subject of the game. <laughs> uh, so then in, 19, in 1997, he directed Fight Club, which I only learned when I was a bit older wasn't actually that well received considering the legacy it had when like by the time even we were teenagers, everyone loved Fight Club and it was on all those, you know, thousand movies you have to see before you die lists. Um, it made back its budget with a hundred million dollar gross, but there was no real positive critical consensus on this. Uh, and in 1999, Fincher was shortlisted to direct the 2002 Spider-Man adaptation. So I really want to detour and talk about this because we both have notes about it. He lost out to Ravi and said he presented his uh, vision to Columbia Pictures. They hated it. Uh, he's, he said it was a guy who settled into being a freak and he had no interest in origin story. Um, I, I think... I couldn't quite tell, but from an article I read, he was also considered for the Sony follow-up, which would have meant another Andrew Garfield collaboration, possibly. Um, but so, yeah, I love the idea of Fincher as a superhero movie director. How about you? Yeah, because uh, uh, at least from the, what's reported, he wanted to do The Night Gwen Stacy Died yeah. as his Spider-Man movie, which I think like that's that's the the fincher i want to see i want to see fincher do i i think that fincher would excel at what people think Zack snyder superhero movies are about mm -hmm. like people think that Zack snyder superhero movies are all like about the dark and gritty which i think is i, I think people are mistaken about snyder snyder is more interested in the mythic and i don't think fincher is interested in myth at all mm -hmm. he's very interested in like uh, like the 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 quote that he's given a number of times, um, that like there's a book of interviews with him under this title, films that scar. Mm -hmm. Like he's really interested in hurting the audience, and there's a variety of su uh, of superheroes and comics in general that that would work with. Like I would love to see him do um, uh, a Batman movie with um, the the Jason Todd story, uh, the, a death in the family where where the second Robin dies. I feel like he would excel at that kind of thing. And I think that's what we would have gotten out of, uh, uh, out of Spider-Man from David Fincher. Yeah. I particularly love the idea of him not being focused on backstory and origin, because when I read that, it made me think that a lot of the focus characters of his film are people who he doesn't bother giving like a backstory to, and it's not so much that their backstory is intentionally ambiguous or whatever. It, he just doesn't bother. And um, like, he's not cute about it. Like I think even like Benjamin Button, um, which, you know, is his most Oscar baity movie, but like the movie isn't about figuring out why Benjamin Button is this way and whatever. It's just about his life. Um, or, um, you know, both, um, John Doe in in Seven, uh, the Zodiac Killer, like an, an actual real person, like who famously like no one knew anything about him. And then I thought of Gone Girl. Um, I don't know if you've read the book, but like with, with Gone Girl, which is a pretty solid adaptation in terms of faithfulness to the book. But one of the things is the book contains so much more of Amy's background and pathology. And so I kind of like that he's like, yeah, I don't want to bother with origin stories. Like, that's not my thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it really isn't. But then I also look at the tonality. And I know that this is probably a tired take to have at this point. But the Raimi Spider-Man, um, it, it to me is 
the last time that we were really able to have like an auteur superhero movie. Actually, no, the Nolan Batman trilogy for sure as well. Those have like Nolan stink all over it. But like Raimi, you know, when you watch like especially the Doc Ock coming to life scene and stuff like that, that is so him. And so I would love nothing more in my life than to see just um, David Fincher get his grubby little hands all over Spider-Man and do do something with it. I, I can't say I know what it would look like, but um, it's certainly, you know, now being deep into so much of the Marvelverse, it's something that I would have loved to, to have seen in my lifetime. Yeah, I... Marvel's releases last year absolutely broke me. Uh, like, they just... <laughs> Because I was I was a big Marvel fan up until you know COVID hits and we get a year without Marvel movies and I was really excited going into 2021 and just disappointment after disappointment for me and a lot of it has to do with feeling like even the most interesting director they had Chloe Zhao was only able to make half a Chloe Zhao film mm-hmm. in the Eternals yeah. and that is it's a shame because like. Even more recently, like, I think Black Panther is a very Ryan Coogler film. Mm-hmm. Um, they We know that they can do, th- that they can give filmmakers the, the leeway they need, but they don't. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I would love, like, Fincher is, just given his kind of, you know, tenacity and refusal to, refusal to give a shit <laughs> with the studios, <laughs> yeah. um, I feel like he's... Yeah, he, he's one of the few directors where if he got hired to make a superhero movie, that would perk my ears up. Absolutely. And it's it's great that we're talking about popcorn flicks because, you know, Panic Room, which you brought up in your notes, and then I had to remember, oh, right, Panic Room is a David Fincher movie. And that is totally the one that no one thinks of as a Fincher movie. And even he's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of popcorn-y. Um, I went back and rewatched it, you know, knowing it as a Fincher movie. And I'm just like, man, like, and this is, again, what I continue to love about David Fincher. He gets so much out of his actors. Like, that is, that is yes, it's a popcorn movie, but it's such an actor's movie. It's it's bonkers how, how Finchery that movie is. Yeah. Like, on the one hand, stylistically, you get the kind of, like, camera moving through walls shot a number of times <laughs> yeah. that you also get in the game and in Fight Club. Um but in terms of the actors, like, yes, we, we get the return of Jared Leto, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but, like, Forrest Whitaker, Jodie Foster, and a very young but incredibly good Kristen Stewart. She's so good. Like, she's so good in that movie. And, like, we had to, uh, the unfortunate detour of the Twilight years where she got unfairly maligned. Yeah. Um, but at least, you know, Oscar nominee this year. Uh, I'm not caring much about the Oscars, but I hope that she gets it because she was great in that movie. Um, Hard recommend, but, like, though, for uh, 2004, uh, the film adaptation of the book Speak. Speak was my favorite, like, young adult book. Um, and Kristen Stewart plays the lead in it. And so she's, like, 13 or 14 at the time. And um, so it's around the same era as Panic Room. Um, man, is she amazing in it so like i've been i've been on key team case do for almost 20 years now <laughs> were you a catch that kid teenager or were you a little too old for catch that kid when it came out i was a little bit too old however i did see it because the kid i babysat watched it so <laughs> yeah i was i was absolutely the right age for catch that kid and i've 
loved that movie. (laughs) It's terrible. Don't go back and watch it, but um, it's very fun. So on the topic of things that are uh, that are good when you go back and rewatch it, 2007 Red Zodiac. Um, So yeah, it was among the best reviewed movies of 2007, but only modestly commercially successful. I think it must have really burned his ass that it had no Oscar Golden Globe nominations because there was a huge campaign for that. And all I have to say is David Fincher, it was too long. Like um, that, uh, what actually, I'll say the best part of that movie, John Carroll Lynch. He's in like one scene. Yes. Oh my God. He's so chilling. Why doesn't that guy have an Oscar? <laughs> like, he He's so chilling and he's so, but like he's, we can like look forward to Mindhunter and like Ed Kemper is kind of the obvious comparison within mm-hmm. Fincher's filmography. John Carroll Lynch, while being chilling, is also a calming presence. Like yeah. in like in other movies that he's in, like he's the he's the person who brings the temperature down. Like Fargo. And to see him play against type in that way. Yeah. Like Fargo, um uh The Founder. Another Sorkin film. Uh okay, the founder, absolutely. The Trial of the Chicago Seven. He he is the kind of the one of the Chicago Seven that always tries to bring the temperature down. That is his his character type. Um and to see him be the one where that is turned on its head Mm -hmm. is just so unsettling and so good because he's so good at it and i think of like probably the the one thing i would compare it to the most is who he is in the founder because in the founder he's the gentler brother and he is like the kind of like always has a smile see the bright side and like he is just so like everything about him is unnerving you know he's he is designed to make you feel uncomfortable he's so imposing and yeah, um, also uh, very, uh, very telling about uh, the origin of Brie, again, with the inappropriate movies. Um, my first exposure to John Carroll Lynch was uh, the guy who got swallowed by the lava in the ground on uh, in Volcano. Um, God, I haven't seen Volcano in years. I oh, didn't realize that was him. So, um, <laughs> That's so wild. This is going to be even worse. It's just like uh, up in the ante. When I was uh, at my previous job and experiencing a lot of anxiety and I would like literally just be crying at my desk all day and then needed to like pull my shit together, go into a meeting, I would go on YouTube and look up the clip of him getting swallowed up by the volcano puddle and it would put a big smile on my face and then I'd go into a meeting like, and you can ask anyone I work with, they they will back this up. So John Carroll Lynch, he's someone I'd love Fincher to work with more um so but we'll yeah we'll get into that in our lightning round but uh uh so he almost immediately got back to work on curious case of benjamin button and i feel bad calling it oscar bait because it is a great movie but that's so oscar baity that movie yes yeah no question it's his most oscar bait film yeah and it received 13 nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. The three wins were all on the creative arts side. I believe visual effects, makeup, uh, something? Um, but yeah. Um, and and it's a great movie. And it's it was nice to see him just do something that also didn't feel like so insular. And I feel bad because like insular is not a bad thing, but is definitely like his least insular movie. It's there's a lot of beautiful world building in that movie. So and yeah, for I I it's one of the few movies where I really recommend um people watch um the the special features on its criterion release. Mm -hmm. Um as like especially if it's the Fincher film that you just don't get. Mm -hmm. Um because it's it's 
it's weird how Fincher's most personal movies are generally his most maligned, um, with Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Mank um, as two of the, his most like kind of critically controversial films. But they're both of his like deeply personal, uh, the ones he's most attached to. Um, and when you hear Fincher talk about his attachments to that story and to its setting, um, it starts to unlock. I, I'm not saying it fixes the movie, but um, if you've been looking for a new way to to look at that very Oscar baity movie, mm-hmm. uh, the the special features on its Criterion release they, they make you see it in a different light. I think it came out in my last year of high school, and um, or maybe just when I started. It was 2008, so that was when I started university, but. Um, I remember actually not knowing at first that it was a David Fincher movie because the way it was marketed was super Oscar baity. And what actually got me to go out to the theaters was knowing that it was David Fincher. So, uh, but uh, nothing had to work that hard to get me out of my seat to go see the social network. I mean, even without the Fincher at all, it's the whole like, oh my God, they've made a movie out of the guys who started Facebook. Um, and it was a collaboration with Aaron Sorkin. Uh, Similar critical and commercial success, eight Oscar nominations and three wins. I think this is the most likable Aaron Sorkin script. And I really think, like I said, a lot of it does come down to Fincher gets so much out of his actors. That movie was so incredibly well cast and that movie was so well suited for the kind of script and the kind of dialogue that Aaron Sorkin writes. Yeah, like... Do do we want to go on our our, our Sorkin tangent Fuck a little yeah. bit here? <laughs> okay, so um, I around this same time I was working at summer camps in North Ontario, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I did during that time up in in Cobalt, Ontario, was my first experience of the West Wing, and I was a little young liberal teenage idealist, and I friggin' loved the West Wing. And I'm not ashamed to admit it. I still, I'm still very fond of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that as, I, as I've grown in my politics and as I've grown as a consumer of media that I think is interesting about Fincher is that the social network is actually an outlier for him where no one in the film comes off well. Like yeah. it's the movie where everyone, like even Andrew, like even Andrew Garfield doesn't come off that well in the end. No. Um, it's a movie about men destroying each other because they of their bruised egos and toxic masculinity. Yeah. Every other film that Fincher or that, that Sorkin has done or TV show is about people that he thinks are good people. Mm-hmm. And they always fail in trying to do what they're trying to do. Yeah. Like every Sorkin project is about the failure of liberal idealism <laughs> and how Sorkin just doesn't want to, doesn't want to, to become a cynic, mm-hmm. but his, his works are out. And that's how I defend Sorkin. Mm-hmm if I can, is that like, he's, he's, he's optimistic, but he also always like Jeb Bartlett never gets anything done in the West Wing. Like Mm -hmm. if you actually track the president's accomplishments in that show, nothing gets done. Um, In both of his shows about TV show, all or all three of them, the TV shows fail and the hosts get, get canned. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all about liberal failure. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, the one thing um, that I think prevents me, like, and that also, I think, makes people malign Sorkin so much. Uh, people always point to that scene from uh, the newsroom, the one on the plane, uh, with uh... <laughs> and, It's bad. It's yeah, bad. It's, I'll admit it. It's very bad. It's not just bad. It's fun to hate. And you don't ever want to be yeah. fun to hate, you know? I know we have fun, but... Um, 
is that I think that Sorkin believes that his characters are good. And that's like, I think Sorkin just needs to be more cynical. And so the reason why, like you said, the social network works is because the social network is an inherently cynical story. If if there was one thing I could change about that movie, I would love to just, I, I love Rashida Jones. She's lovely. I've got so many feelings about her. I want to thank her dad for all he's done. But chop off that final scene of hers telling Mark, you know, you're not about, you're not an asshole. You're just trying so hard to be in him trying to friend the girl on Facebook and stuff. Just like it, it gives a little bit too much softness to the whole thing. I don't think it ruins the movie. I think the movie's a fucking amazing movie, but um, I just, I, I think Aaron Sorkin believes in his characters a little too much. And so it was, I think David Fincher is a really good match for him because David Fincher and the way he works with actors and what he gets out of them creates such impossible to like characters, even, you know, no matter who his screenwriting partner is. Yeah, I, I've gotten into fights with film critics about that line. The you're not uh, a <laughs> you're trying so hard to be because I actually think that it's the more critical version. Like if it, if it was just you're an asshole, I think that that's actually less critical because it's essentialist. Yeah. Like I think that like the line as written understands something about how toxic masculinity works mm-hmm. that we don't do a good enough job understanding, which is that it's not, it's not about like fundamental characteristics of people. It's about a social ideal that is constructed, that people are moving toward or that, that people desire and want to be. And by wanting to be this, you know, like ultimate male victor, they act like assholes. And that part of what we, part of what the movie is criticizing is that, that position of desire, that position of like trying so hard to be an asshole because you think that's, what's going to make you successful. So I, I defend that line. Um, and I also don't think that the, him friending, uh, I forget the uh well, forget Rudy Mara's character's name in that. Erica Albright. That I don't know Erica. why I remember that, but um him friending her. Like it's just so pathetic. It's so <laughs> it's so absolutely pathetic. And to have that paired with the Beatles song on the soundtrack, Baby You're a Rich Man, and the 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 title card overlay, he's the youngest billionaire in the world, is just this like deeply ironic pose to end the movie on as as i said i am i can't be objective about this i feel the need to defend this movie with my every breath but i total i get it oh, no, I, I just think that there's so much going on there you have legitimately given me a lot to think about so i can so appreciate that and i um i mean it also helps that i'm a very non-confrontational person and i hate arguing but i'm also like i'm not gonna stand up against a phd student in cinematic studies um but no that that is a wonderful point, and that makes me smile. Um, so on the topic of Rooney Mara, uh, he uh, Fincher follows up Social Network really quickly with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Like I had to go back and try to remember which of those came out first, uh, because I saw both of them at the Princess Twin. And if I recall, I think they must have come out around the same time of year, just one year later, because I feel like it, there was... There was yucky snow on the ground when I got out. Um, yeah. Oh, Princess Twin. Is it still there? The Princess Twin? I think so. God, I think I, I, I think so. they were worried early COVID mm-hmm. uh, about it falling, but um, I think they, they were able to save it somehow. Ooh, independent cinema. Um, so yeah, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Successful financially, critically, awards. 
But I feel like what really, really casts a negative light over those is, and just like a sour kind of ending is that the subsequently planned sequels never played out. Um, and that makes me sad because um, I love Rooney Mara. I love Daniel Craig. Although it, it sucks that, you know, Salon Skarsgård character dies because he's actually my favorite part of that movie. Like, I, I love that Fincher is always like he has a few actors that he'll work with a couple times, but he's always willing to pull in a, a new kind of cast of friends. And say, hey, how would you work in this? Yeah, Dragon Tattoo is like <clears throat> it shows what having someone as experienced as Fincher can do for a story. Like, I think that the 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 Swedish movies are are very good. Yeah. Um, but the. W- and this comes back to something you've been saying, how much he gets out of his actors. Yeah. Like, I know a lot of people who find the um, the moment when Lisbeth asks Mikhail for permission to go kill um, um, Stellan Skarsgård. Yeah. Really cringy. Oh. I, yeah. I never have. And it's, and it's entirely because of their performance where, like, it's not about she feels the need to ask a man for permission it's that she has begun to trust someone for the first time in her life mm-hmm. and that's the dominant mode of her performance mm-hmm. is learning to trust someone so she doesn't have to be so self-sufficient because self-sufficiency will burn you out and kill you mm-hmm. um so yeah i just oh, i love it so much <laughs> so i watch movies very differently from my husband um and he is a lot more of just like uh he doesn't go back and examine things a lot that's not how he prefers to watch movies but so whenever he points out something little to me that he notices, I, I pay attention. And um, one of those is a moment that I can't believe I didn't notice, which is when he first when um, Mikhail first goes and meets Elizabeth and he says, I need you to help me catch a killer of women. And the way her face like she almost looks like um, like Wiley Coyote on an island and he just saw a steak. Um, and like the intrigue in her eyes, like the, the reason why, like, and I, I'll admit, I saw the U S adaptation first, actually, I didn't see the Swedish version first. And I know a lot of people prefer, um, and I forget the actress's name, but who plays Lisbeth in the Swedish version. Uh, Nomi Rapace. Yes. Um, I think she's great, but I think being a big fan of the books, I actually do think that Rooney Mara is better cast in that movie and I know that it was you know just working with her on that little five minute scene in social network that prompted uh Fincher to cast her um first of all that movie gets that Lisbeth is not supposed to be beautiful um they actually really ugly her up like um Nomi Rapace looks like a model who dyed her hair black and put on some eyeliner yes um she's you know she's a she's a not like other girls hot girl and um like Lisbeth, um, even like I think the book even says, like canonically, that she is probably autistic, and yeah, um, I think Rooney Mara actually plays her that way, you know, and not just in the obvious like inability to make eye contact, but like the way she holds eye contact too long, and the way she just like, you know has this very flat tone of voice and doesn't understand inflection or doesn't, you know, doesn't properly return inflection and stuff. And so I think like that movie, you could just gush over it over the actors alone, but then add in like the, the art direction, the montages, the pacing, the the way he works in music, the set design, like um, the beautiful contrast and the warmth between, you know, what takes place on the Island versus off the Island. Like, Oh, 
have a lot of feelings about dragon tattoos. So. It's, and one thing that I love that I know comes across, it must come across if you are Swedish and like understand that language when watching the Swedish versions um, and when reading the books, because the title of that book is Men Who Hate Women. Mm-hmm. And the English title is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> and that's what I love about that that scene that you picked out, where it's like, I want you to help me catch a killer of women. It's it's literalizing that that aspect of the yeah. book that American audiences weren't immediately thrown into because of the title change. Yeah. And it feels like one of those things where like Fincher is um wants to scar you wants to hurt you with his movies yeah. but also wants you to like wants you to understand that there's something moral happening here absolutely um yeah it's a it's a dense book and so there's a lot that neither film could include like the fact that Mikhail goes to jail in the middle of it and serves a jail sentence the fact that he has an affair with uh with one of the Venestrom sisters um and i mean even though the american version actually fully changes the ending uh with the whereabouts of anita um, I actually find his version tonally very, a very, very good fit to the book. I will also say that as much as I am sad that I didn't get to see him adapt the other two, of the Millennium Trilogy, I think the first is undoubtedly the best and can live on its own very well. And so it's not the worst thing in the world to me that he didn't get to do the other two. So the 2010s were split between films such as Gone Girl, My Precious Gone Girl, and um, his notable TV projects, including House of Cards and Mindhunter, um, both of which being Netflix series, and both of which, um, you know, the end of the production was kind of troubled. I mean, House of Cards, obvious reasons, the Kevin Spacey of it all, but it had also critically just taken a nosedive even before the Kevin Spacey of it all. It had. Which you can't blame Uh, Fincher. No, and like, Fincher was more involved with Mindhunter overall. Like, mm-hmm. Fincher, I don't think, directed anything past the first season on House of Cards. No, I think he, he stayed didn't. on as an EP, mm-hmm. but he was um, not show running it. And you can feel where Fincher's commitment to brutal reality leaves that show around, like, season three. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, the... Uh, it's a show that I just, I can't go back to. Um, unlike wow. Unlike Seven, where... The fact that we know that Kevin Spacey is a monster kind of makes John Doe better. Yeah. Like, makes him a better character. It doesn't do the same for for Frank Underwood. The rule is you can enjoy a Kevin Spacey movie if he dies in it, or if he's killed, if he's murdered in it. Um, Although, I mean, he's murdered in American Beauty, and that's a whole other thing. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, with Mindhunter, it's more that the the way it ended was just sad. Because it's just like, yeah, like, that, you know we've kind of run out of time on it. Like we can't, like, I know he still hopes that they can resume it, but like, I don't, it's just not. I'm hopeful. I I think it will, because of the difference between season one and season two of Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. Um, Like season one is very episodic. Mm -hmm. And while there are a number of really interesting directors who worked on that show, um, season one feels Feels like everyone is really working from the Fincher playbook. Season two is working on a different scale because the first three episodes are directed by Fincher. The second two, the, the next two by Andrew Dominic mm-hmm. of um, the uh, uh, Jesse James killed by the coward Robert Ford, whatever that. The assassination. Insanely yeah. long movie title. That's it. Um, um, 
and killing them softly. And then the final four episodes are directed by the other one of the other directors from my my course, Carl Franklin. Ah. And Carl Franklin is this like super under uh, under recognized black director who got big in the '90s directing um, um, uh, *Devil in a Blue Dress* with Denzel Washington and um, a great movie called. Um, uh, Oh, I'm forgetting the name of it, and I need to actually look this one up. Yeah, this is not um, one I know. <laughs> That's okay. um, it's all all of the the actors' names are just escaping my head at this point. Um, but he like he he was an act. He started as an actor. He then um worked with uh, Roger Corman for a bit. The movie's called Ooh. One False Move. Um, mm-hmm. it stars Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. Oh. Uh, it is it is a like top tier movie about like southern racial politics and crime and it's 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 brilliant i can't believe i never heard of it yeah well like he had a couple of less than critically successful films in the early 2000s um and yet having carl franklin direct and really take the lead on the atlanta section for the end of that season Mm -hmm. gives it a totally different tone and feels like we're getting um these shorter mini serialized bits in in season two of Mindhunter, which is a weird TV model for sure. Mm-hmm. But I would love to see another I would love to see another season of Mindhunter in a couple of years where the same kind of model applies, where Fincher directs three episodes, some other guy directs three episodes, and like where we get these kind of mini mini films created to uh, to build out a season. Because I, I liked what that did with season two. Yeah. Like, there's been some discourse recently about, like, um, and I think maybe it was spurned by, like, Inventing Anna, the absolute... I know I hate when people say most mediocre, because how can something be the most mediocre? But what an incredibly mediocre series. But, like, talking about how TV doesn't... TV and TV miniseries, like, if it just feels like a really long extended movie, just make a fucking movie or whatever... I don't know if I agree with that because I think Mindhunter is a really good example of TV that can feel cinematic, but also they understand how to make it episodic. Um, you know, and right now I am watching um, right now I'm watching Severance, which you know, yes, the idea works as a movie, but the pacing of it um, it makes it is what makes it so good as a series. Yeah, you could make it shorter, trim out some of the fat, and make a movie, but it's. It's the dynamic, I think a lot of it, and again, we talk about actors, the dynamic of the characters and how that relationship evolves over time is what's going to make you want to watch, you know, 10 episodes one week after another versus just watching the relationship progress over 90 minutes or 120 minutes. And I think that's also like, you know, the relationship between uh, Holden and Tench, um, that is something that I like to, I prefer to see play out and evolve over time over the length of the season. I also say I would love for them to bring back a third season just to like apologize to Anna Torn for what they did with her makeup in the second season and how her her foundation was like yellow. And I think it was something that they were going for in terms of like trying to bring like a certain tonality to the scene, but she almost ends up looking sick and it's just it's bad makeup. It's terrible makeup. Interesting. I have absolutely no mind for for makeup. Oh. Like I, I, can't, I can't see it when it's on. I can't see it when it's off. But that's oh, now I'll that be I've, rewatching it soon. Now that so I pointed uh, it out, it'll be all you see. It starts in the second season. I don't know why it's not that way in the first season, but in the second season, she is interesting jaundiced. Um, so yeah. Also, I 
I feel like I had heard about this and then forgot, but in 2019, he failed to get a sequel to World War Z off the ground with Netflix. Um, would have been his fourth Brad Pitt collaboration, I guess. Um, yep. I would, again, I, I really want to see David Fincher big action. Um, and I kind of liked, I liked the idea of World War Z. I know I'm a Canadian, so it's supposed to be Zed, but, um, but I would love to see it in the hands of a filmmaker with just some different ideas, you know? I, I want to see Fincher leave reality. Yeah. Finally. Cause like, um, if you go back and watch Alien 3, knowing like he was a replacement director, but you can see that like he he has a, a handle on the weirdness of sci-fi. I just want to see him go there. I want to see him like really get outside of things happening in the here and now or in the recent past mm. and like let his imagination fly um, or like work with someone whose imagination he can feed off of. Because this is another kind of great thing about Fincher. He's not a writer director. He doesn't write his own scripts. He always has someone that he's collaborating with and kind of feeding off of to, yeah. um, to make that work. Um, yeah. I, the closest he's come to leaving reality besides alien three would be Benjamin button, which isn't even leaving reality. It's just, we're in our same reality, except this one guy can have this disorder and everything else is totally normal. So, um, so then his most recent cinematic release, a quote-unquote cinematic, was 2020's Mank, which was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. You can't count box office to totals because of COVID. It sucks because I, when I've been doing filmmakers this season, I'm like, and this movie grows this much, and this movie grows this much, and now we can't really compare it at all. Um, yeah. I mean, and Mank, what a polarizing thing, I, which it's to me, it is crazy that Mank is as polarizing as it is. Um, because, like... In what way? Okay. I think Mank is very much an actor's movie. Again, I think Oldman's great in it. I think Amanda Seyfried is fantastic in it. Um, is it Fincher's best movie? No, not at all. Um, but I just... I left Mank, I left Mank feeling no particularly strong feelings about it. I thought the pacing was a little not not what i'm used to from fincher i'm used to things i'm used to not feeling the length of his movies um yeah but i feel like i don't know i think a lot of people had strong reactions to make i would have to guess in part because there was a lot of controversial about it needing to be released in cinemas and a lot of people feeling hesitant about getting back to the cinema physically and stuff because there's still the covid risk and I saw a lot of people like, oh, we went back to the movies for this. And I'm like, Interesting. that bad? Like this, uh, th this shows the, the slightly different circles we run in online. I'm okay. sure. Cause oh, yeah. the, the people that were angry at Mank in my circles were angry because it is partly based on Pauline Kael's now fully discredited history of the making of Citizen Kane. Yeah. Um, and I like, I, if what I was hearing was what you were hearing, I actually, I, I kind of respect that. I find, like, especially, like, Nolan's insistence on getting people back to the movies, like, really tone deaf. Yes. Um, But what I love about Mank, because um, it's, it's not his best movie, but I think it is underrated, mm -hmm. um, is that he takes this, like, complicated production history and turns it into a movie about labor rights, mm -hmm. where, like, the, the, the conflict is not... Like, who is the author of Citizen Kane? The conflict is, should someone who put labor 
into an artistic product receive compensation and recognition for that labor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the conflict between Mank and Orson Welles is at the end of that film. The only co- the only thing that that movie says bad about Orson Welles is that he wants to take all the credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something about that that feels refreshing, especially like given the uh, the near IATSE strike in the past year, labor rights have become much more important. It's a movie about labor rights. Yep. And when you read it that way, instead of as like trying to correct the record on who wrote Citizen Kane, it just, it really opens up and ha- has a lot of really rewarding shit in it. The one thing that for me really um, not saves Mank, because I think there's, again, a lot to like about Mank. Um, but one of the things about Mank that makes me happy is how good Fincher is at doing, giving an ending that feels like an ending, but doesn't feel resolved, or it's like it's resolved in this regard, but it's not resolved in that. That resolved is not necessarily satisfying because you see them both, you know, accept, uh, accepting the awards together, but there, there's, no one feels happy about it. And I think like I would compare that to, uh, I would compare that to Gone Girl in which, you know, like, yes, there's an ending and Ben Affleck's not going to jail or whatever, but no one's happy about this. Um, or Seven, uh, like, I mean, most of, much of his films, aside from maybe like Benjamin Button, which literally puts a nice button on it, um, yeah. that he's really good at saying like, yes, this is a resolution. It's just like, you're not gonna, it's not tragic. It's not happy. Like to, to quote Marge Simpson, it's an ending, Homer. <laughs> so, um, absolutely. Yeah. He also recently EP'd the series War on Netflix. I'm going to fully admit this. Probably bad for my own podcast. I haven't seen it. <laughs> well, he like he he's. I've seen it. Um, it's it's really great, but okay. it is. It's not like it is. Uh, and I think this is on the theme of Mank. Um, like he's he's the EP on it, but what it is is basically a series of video essays from other film writers and um uh like walter Shaw has an amazing piece about um uh about 48 hours the eddie murphy movie um that is that that, that's the final episode of war and like it's it's his voice that's there fincher is taking a back seat but he's what he's interested in is the voices of these people Mm -hmm. um and he, he there is no intrusion from him so it's both like nice to know that for for the podcast but also like it is it is to the side um for him so as we're getting into kind of the miscellaneous notes um now i've mentioned montages and i know i think we're slightly different minds on this because like when i think of the finchers or i guess we just differ on what we feel is the fincher signature because for me what if you were to tell me ask me what is david fincher's signature i immediately go to the fincher montage it might be a bit played out because um, when I think of that streak of social network, then Dragon Tattoo, then Gone Girl, because he wasn't really doing that before. He wasn't doing that in Zodiac. He wasn't doing that in Seven and Benjamin Button. But uh, I think it was once the um, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross um, collaboration started that he realized this shit looks really good under a getting shit done montage. <laughs> Let's investigate. And, like it. I do think what's awesome about it is he can create something as simple as, you know, creating a code for a website and make it seem unnerving. And I think that's really cool. So that to me is like a really cool signature. Um, 
you know, I, I like that he doesn't have to do it all the time. But when I think of David Fincher stylistically, the first thing that pops into my mind is the montage. Yeah, um, this is, it's interesting because it feels like the montage replaced the camera moving through walls. Like that, that, that the camera moving through walls was a really dominant thing for uh, the game through kind of up to Zodiac. I don't think there's actually one of, no, there actually, there is one in Zodiac, I think. But that, that was the, the kind of dominant, his, the thing that like screamed Fincher in those early movies where like going through a space in an uncanny way mm-hmm. and the montage moved to going through a time in an uncanny way, <laughs> um, which is an interesting, like, it's a thing I'm going to have to bring up to my students because it's uh that's a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the other Fincher thing, um, and this, like, uh, fully admit, taking from the every every frame of painting YouTube uh, uh, thing that he that that was made about Fincher, um, the the Fincher signature for me is camera movement. Mm-hmm. The way that cameras are just like like tied with an umbilical cord to characters, and that like every movement is motivated. And when you start noticing the motivated camera movements, you start picking up on what like might be going on beside the film that you're not uh, that that isn't being said explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that's my that's the thing that just always jumps out to me. Like with the um, the um, social network, Andrew Garfield bursting through the doors and smashing Mark's laptop. Like that camera rush, it's thrilling. It's so it, it's so exciting to watch him just like blast through that yeah i also love the very intentional framing of how justin timberlake is just in a corner as he's he's wired in right now like it that's so intentional and it's so great um like he he uses i guess would you call that negative space really well and yeah okay great i went you're you're the academic so i'm like i'm deferring to you um yeah he uses that negative space extremely well i'm also trying to think of probably of course, I always try to bring both worlds together. Um, um, what's a time when he has combined uh, cameras following characters with montages? And the best one I can think of is in Dragon Tattoo toward the end when you're following Lisbeth and she's, uh, you know, uh, diverting all the money into offshore accounts and following her on her little journey. That is a great combination of the intriguing Finter montage with fun ass camera movements. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So here's a here's my uh, my fun thing because and I I said a similar thing um, on our Taylor Swift episode where I said you know you compare anyone to anyone older and people people get mad uh, you compare anyone to Stanley Kubrick and people get mad um, so and I realize that it's not the most direct comparison this is a bit of a belabored comparison but the reason why I think of like. There are a few contemporary directors that I would readily compare to Stanley Kubrick. Uh, Fincher is one of them um, as an auteur. Um, one of those reasons is because I feel like Fincher works in a lot of different genres and a lot of different subgenres because I feel like genre is meaningless to Fincher. Like he's done the personal biopic in, you know, Mank and the social network. He's done the more schmaltzy thing with Benjamin Button. He has done... Um, he has done what is essentially like a trashy, a trashy novel. Like Gone Girl is an airport novel. Like it's an airport bookstore yeah. novel. Um, and he's done, you know, adaptations of a more prestige novel. He's done a serial killer movie. Like, um, so his style transcends it because he has these signatures and he can like, 
what I always think is interesting is he has these very particular themes that he likes to work with, you know, themes of pride, themes of toxic masculinity. Um, and he'll put them in existing IP, like something like yeah. Gone Girl and stuff. He He's like, yeah, I can, I can find that theme there. <laughs> so, I love that. And so I would compare that very readily to Stanley Kubrick because Stanley Kubrick never exclusively worked in one genre either. And he, you know, he took existing IP with something like Lolita or something like The Shining and said, yeah, I know it's written this way, but I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to make I, this is not Stephen King's The Shining. This is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Absolutely. Um, I, I think the Kubrick comparison is is valid. Um, it, it's uh, the th- so the mo- the person that other than Fincher that's most often compared to Kubrick is Christopher Nolan, and I I think that the comparison between the two actually makes it helps clarify things because I think people who compare Chris Nolan to Stanley Kubrick think of thinks of Kubrick as a very cold, emotionless filmmaker, hmm. and I have never agreed with that take. Like two thousand one yeah. makes me cry when Hal is singing Daisy as he's being shut off. Mm-hmm. Because you come to realize that Hal is the most human thing on that ship. Um, his, his movies are incredibly emotional if you're willing to, like, let them affect you. And that's what Fincher's movies do. Um, Chris Nolan is not an emotional filmmaker. That is why everyone reacted so harshly to uh, Anne Hathaway's Love is the Thing that Transcends Time and Space speech from Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Nolan is what the film bro thinks of Kubrick, which is that he's an unemotional robot. Mm. Fincher is what the, like, because, and this is the other thing that uh, is interesting about these two. Loved by film bros, also loved by queer film uh, people. Like, all of, like, as a queer film scholar and as someone with lots of friends who, like, love these movies and hate how film bros talk about them. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a reason that queer people love these these directors so much um, where that love isn't the same for Nolan. Um, and it's because Nolan has this kind of emotional blockage uh, that Kubrick and, and Fincher like, don't. What I would also say, and it's interesting because even though Christopher Nolan is a far more competent filmmaker than M. Night Shyamalan, like I, I feel bad even using their names in the same sentence. But one of the things that Justin J. Case brought up about M. Night that I hadn't even considered before is that his movies went from being really good, you know, studies of characters in unique situations to just ideas. What if there was a beach that made you old? What if there was a, you know, thing, a pathogen going around that made everyone kill themselves? What if, uh, you know, I, I God, I've, I've forgotten all the M. Night Shyamalan movies. That's a good thing. Um, what what if Jaden Smith were somehow able to be a star? He's not. Um, but um, that's something that I think is Nolan at his worst, is his movies are really cool and really well-executed ideas. But at, at its worst, there's not that much meat around it and not, like, yeah. I don't, I don't remember anything about any of the characters in Inception, for example. I can't even remember the name of the character that Elliot Page played, like, or or even actually no. Leonardo DiCaprio, um, because it's not about them. It's about the idea, and it's extremely well executed. Like I said, I can't even, you know, I feel bad even making the comparison to Shyamalan, but whereas I feel like Fincher and Kubrick 
they like look at this idea and this thing and say like, now how would this character react? And let's get really deep into how it's affecting them. Like my favorite Kubrick shot, because it's so over the top, is um, in um, in A Clockwork Orange when the old man realizes that the man in his house is the one who who raped his wife and the kind of like just absolute craziness of his face shaking and he's basically convulsing with the realization. It's just like, I feel like it's him just saying, let's get the most, like, let's get you down to your fucking skeleton in terms of your worst impulses and what would you do in this situation? Um, you know, we talk about the Kubrick stare. I like the Kubrick losing your shit. Um, by the way, I was thinking about Clockwork Orange recently because it is one of my favorite movies. I always forget that that's a secret snake movie. I have a huge fear of snakes. That's a secret snake movie because Alex keeps a snake it in his is, drawer. Yeah. Fuck that. Um, but no, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel like even, like, I feel like Kubrick is a, his films are largely character studies, which without making a big deal of being character studies. So I think Fincher um, really, really borrows a lot from that. On that note, I think, you know, it is a fair comparison about how both are notoriously difficult to work with. Um, you know, I think it's interesting how people look at Kubrick's history now and retroactively go like, oh, he'd be canceled today. When plenty of directors are still known as being very difficult and get work. And I'm not saying that either man is evil and I'm not. And from what I, it doesn't seem like Fincher is as extreme as Kubrick. Like Kubrick was downright abusive. Like Kubrick, you know, ruined precious Shelley Duvall's life. Um, Mm -hmm. But like Fincher, like he doesn't seem like he's fully alienated people. And like his, none of his collaborators hate them, even hate him, even the ones who would, have acknowledged that he's a tool to work with. Like Reznor has said, like he's found working with him difficult, but he collaborates with him again and again and again. But I still do think, you know, it's an interesting comparison considering uh, that Fincher seems like a bit of an unpleasant and intense person to work with. Yeah. It's, it's interesting the way that like, cause there's kind of three sources of information we have about him. There's um, like what gets reported in the press and, on like dvd special features that he's like doing 80 90 takes of an incredibly simple shot i always think about the social network where the winklevi are in a in a a restaurant it's during the montage of um the emails between the winklevi and mark Mm -hmm. um and one of and army hammer who will not talk about um Mm -hmm. is is picking up a burger to eat it and they did like 50 takes of that shot and every time um because the the shot is 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 has it's connected to Army Hammer's head. So as he like takes a bite and lifts up, so he has to take a bite every time. And they did like fifty takes of it, and it's just like that's it's insane. It, it is so that that's that's the one thing. Then we've got like um, the things that his collaborators say. Like Reznor is a, a great example. But then we've also got other things like the way that Brad Pitt talks about. David Fincher mm-hmm. is that like he's an absolute weirdo um but that Brad Pitt feels that he is a better actor because he works with Fincher mm-hmm. and that's what you hear from a lot of actors especially mm-hmm. and I love that because that 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 is kind of the the litmus test for directors for me is if actors say like if they they feel that like there was someone who was in control of the process um they they, they weren't just like 
going off on tangents that they, they they had some, they had direction um but also that they feel like they're they were able to elevate their work by collaborating with this person and that's what we really get from fincher's actors yeah there are several actors that he's worked with that like it's not that i thought they were bad actors but it's like oh i didn't know they could do that and two really good examples are ben affleck and rosamund pike you know that they're fine actors. I didn't know they could do that, you know? So, um, but I do think it is funny though when I think about Ben Affleck and thinking about how, you know, notoriously difficult Fincher is. And I know this is like IMDb level trivia, but the him refusing such to- such a good story. Refusing to wear the Yankees cap. Um, because like, I don't know, to me, it feels like the whole bullying a dragon thing, but I'm just like, wow. So that's what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. <laughs> It's such a great story. It's so like, especially because it's like demonstrative of like, like Fincher is anal retentive about certain things, but they all have to do with like the movie happening and working. Ben Affleck just refuses to wear a Yankees cap. And like, that's like, come on, man. You know what, for some reason that makes me think of, it has nothing to do with David Fincher, but it makes me think of the Armageddon commentary when Ben Affleck is like drunk and talking about Michael Bay. You've seen this video, right? And he's like, I asked yeah. Michael Bay, why would you trade a bunch of minors to go to space and not the opposite? And he was like, shut the fuck up. And I'm like, <laughs> I kind of want to hear drunk Ben Affleck's take on the Fincher baseball cap. <laughs> I asked David if I could wear the, if I did ha- didn't wear the Yankees hat, he was just like, shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I would kill for it. I, oh, to I be would. a fly on the wall. Oh. So since we're talking about Rosamund Pike, I want to get to our last note. I'm so excited about this, which is female leads. Um, because, like I said in the intro, like I know it's like a basic white boy film bro uh, opinion of me to be like, I love David Fincher, but like his, he gets stereotyped as a film bro director, which I think we both agree, and I hope this podcast proves that he's not. But I do wish he worked a little bit more with female leads because like I love Rooney Mara in a girl with the dragon tattoo. He gets so much out of her. Rosamund Pike, um, Jodie Foster. And I would argue Kristen Stewart. They're so good at carrying a movie. I just, I wish he did a little bit more in that um, and bring stories to life that are distinctly female. Because I think like, I, I have, you know, maybe more ambiguous views on gender because as a person who kind of alternates between she and they and you know will sometimes use the term no thanks binary um i i don't necessarily believe that you need a female director to tell female stories because the female experience is not one fucking thing um and i think that as stereotyped as like masculine as he is i would really love to see him just have you know, have more women in the center and have, like, I would love to see more uh, more stories that feature multiple women prominent in the cast. This is, like, this is the this is the thing that even when women in his films are are marginal, like, um, you could say Anna Torv would count for that for Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best example, though, is Chloe Sevigny in Zodiac, who gives yeah. an unbelievable performance as... Jolyn Hall's wife, mm-hmm. but like I wanted more from I wanted more of her. Yeah. Um. This is it's that this is a case where the Bechdel test is really helpful mm-hmm. because like all of his films that don't pass the Bechdel test are about toxic masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> They're all about that. 
Um, and, and, and funnily enough, so are his films that do. And only three of them do. Benjamin Button, Panic Room, and Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those things where, like, so what is the difference there? And it's it's about having multiple women. Mm-hmm. That, like, Panic Room is the only example we have where the, the, where the cast is made up primarily of two women. Though, in that case, it's mother and daughter. Yeah. But it... It forces us to ask the question of, like, what if he were to do something like Paul Feig's A Simple Favor, um, which feel which like feels like Paul Feig trying to make a, a comedic Fincher film, or doing uh, Ridley Scott with Thelma and Louise, or Steve McQueen with Widows, where instead of having um, it be a battle of the sexes, which it so often is, um, uh, when he does have female leads, where they're... they're um, there's either cooperation or collaboration um, or, or competition between the male and female lead mm-hmm. having just two women, at least two, like he could do more. It would be great to see like his, cause he's so good at the buddy thing. Mm-hmm. He's been making buddy films his entire career. Having a Thelma and Louise from Fincher is, is what we're missing in his filmography. And I think that his, given what we know of his gender politics from his films, mm-hmm. um, especially if he's working with a, uh, working with someone like Julian Flynn, who like she was a an Im- really important collaborator on Gone Girl because she wrote the script for her own novel. Um, it would be great to see that be the next step in this. It, it's the open question in his filmography, and I I, I want to I want to see it answered. Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, that's interesting is um, a film that doesn't pass the Bechdel test, but it it's kind of reinforced in the film is um, Gwyneth Paltrow in Seven because she has no other woman to talk to, but the whole tragedy of her is that she has no one to talk to. And um, like Gwyneth Paltrow as a person, um, you know, we we hate it. Thanks, we hate it. There's that great sound going around on TikTok right now, unless we're talking about my enemy, enemy, Gwyneth Paltrow. Fuck you, Gwyneth Paltrow. You know you did. I, I do love watching that movie because I love remembering that Gwyneth Paltrow is quite a tremendous actress. And um, especially when she's not trying to be funny, I don't find her funny. Um, But like, it's that someone can use the line, David and I are going to have a baby. And she just seems so sad about it. Like you're talking about your husband. This is not even like an unplanned whatever. And like the exhaustion that she has, but like, so that's a movie where she doesn't have another woman to collaborate with or what, or interact with at all. But at least you can say that it's kind of reinforced and that's her character's whole thing is feeling extremely alone. Um, yeah, I, uh, so, well, it's great because we're uh, swinging into the lightning round. And our first question is, who's an actor he's worked with once that you'd like to see him work with again? Kate Blanchett. Bring yeah. back Kate Blanchett and David Fincher. She's so good in in Benjamin Button. And we know that she can play we know that she can play all types. Like she can go super high comedic and weird, like in Don't Look Up. Mm-hmm. She can go like super like kind of classy and like staid in Carol. She can do Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator, but she can also like get weird. Mm-hmm. And I want to see a weird Kate Blanchett take uh, with Fincher. So I will double down on Gwyneth Paltrow. However, I'll also offer one cheat. And it's because he's someone who was in House of Cards. And I don't think in necessarily that many, if any, Fincher-directed episodes, but Jimmy Simpson. Um, Ooh, okay. Yeah, Jimmy Simpson is such a good actor. And it kind of sucks that I feel like millennials, 
I don't want to say only know him, but like we all know that he's a good actor, but he's always going to be a McPoyle to us. <laughs> um, I think he's super creepy. I think he he's a person who plays like a creep who knows how creepy he is. And I just feel like I want to see him as a leading man. I want to see him as a businessman. I want to see him as a fighter, something. So uh, now the opposite. Who's an actor that he's never worked with that you'd like to see him work with? Uh, so this is me just like dream casting because mm-hmm. this is probably my favorite working actress. I want to see Kira Knightley in a David Fincher movie. Um, <laughs> like she's she's done Domino. We know that she can like get like get out of being the like prestige period drama Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm. She can be more down to earth and more like ordinary. And so yes, what I want is Kate Blanchett and Kira Knightley in a David Fincher movie as as fucked up buddies of some kind. That's what I want. Both of them are also very well known for playing a lot of pe- doing a lot of period pieces too. So um yeah. so in terms of female leads, Amy Adams. Um with with it's not even that there's something about her that would be so great with Fincher. I just think Amy Adams is one of my favorite actresses and like an actress that is so undeniably good. Um, and I feel like she can, she brings everything she has. She can do like kind of the naive Hollywood starlets, you know, wide eyed look. She can also as, you know, like American hustle sucked, um, but it very, I don't want to say sucked. David O. Russell tried, but like, I feel like she, like, it just didn't live up to its potential, but she is really good at playing, you know, someone who's very savvy and knows what the fuck she's doing. So like, I feel like Fincher could do a lot with her. On the male side, Jesse Plemons. Um, yeah. He's... Like, after game night, after mm-hmm. game, like, you after game night, we know what, we game night and the power of the dog and Breaking Bad, like, we know the scope that that man has. Yes. God, or imagine imagine a marital drama directed by David Fincher with Plemons and Kristen Dunst. Or Jesse like, Buckley. Just imagine yeah. that. Like, oh, his, both so. his off-screen wife and his, and his on-screen lover, I think. Um, but, like, I think Jesse Plemons is so good at playing a man who's tortured. I think he's so good at playing someone who um, is like Breaking Bad is a good example of him with this very strange toxic masculinity because his character is so fucking pleasant, but he's also a Nazi who like has no problem with what his Nazi uncle does and stuff. And so like um, Fincher is really good at like, he doesn't even rehabilitate these people. He just looks at them with a very neutral lens and says like, show me what you can do. So I think, I think, oh, I would love Plemons uh, in, in a David Fincher movie. So What's your favorite Fincher montage? Uh, so the one the one that I've picked, because it's the one that always kind of stands out in my memory, is uh, Mank, when Mank is drunk during the election and sees the election being lost, mm-hmm. and like the camera is just swirling around him as he is realizing that everything everything is lost, everything that he, he wanted. Um, I it feels um, it, it feels the most human of his montages to me. And I really, I, I really appreciate what it's doing. So I like one of the first montages in the social network, which is when they are doing the hot or not face mash, whatever it was called and explaining how they're doing it mainly because I think it's a, like 
you don't actually typically see movies with a montage that intense, with a montage at all, but a montage that intense that early in the movie. And it's a very bold choice. And it's like, it feels so lived in already. And it just sets the tone of this is what this movie is going to be. And uh, and the music. Bold. Like yeah! the, the soundtrack to that scene is, it, it announced Atticus Rawson and, uh, 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 and Trent Reznor as like, major figures uh, in the composing landscape. Mm -hmm. There's just no denying it after that scene. Totally agree. So what's another book that you'd like to see him adapt? This was, this is hard because I, I I read a lot of nonfiction. I've got a giant stack of books sitting right next to me of like academic books that I have to read. Um, But I, my, my big controversial opinion of like my favorite author is that I love Ernest Hemingway. Um, he, you know, terrible misogynist of a person, but also someone who, like, his gender politics are way more interesting when you, like, remember the time that he's living in. That he's, mm-hmm. like, always dealing with with men who are emasculated and struggling with that emasculation mm-hmm. um, and, like, understanding the pressure of it. So, for me, I want to see him do The Old Man in the Sea, but, like, 15 years from now, when when he can work with, like, Javier Bardem or Damien Bashir, where they're all the right age to do this, like, you know, very classical um, old man book mm-hmm. of, of American literature, I think that would be really, really cool. Uh, so I have a more recent pick. Um, I love Miriam Taves, and I... I was originally going to say her novel, The Flying Troutmans, which is one of her less famous novels, I want to say, Um, because one of the things that Fincher hasn't done a lot of, but I think would be really good, is family drama. However, I recently read Women Talking, and Women Talking is um, for, because I don't know if it was big outside of Canada, Women Talking is a novel about a uh, woman living in um, an Amish, um, a, a segregated Amish Mennonite community um, who have been routinely sexually abused uh, by men, but they also like they they have been denied an education, so they like don't know how to read and write. So there's like a single man who lives in their community who's taping all their notes down and stuff. I feel like that's where you could really use like the way Fincher adds intrigue to seemingly everyday events through those montages or through the camera movements. Um, and it would give me a chance to get what I've always wanted out of him, which is a cast of predominantly women. So, um, That's a great pick. So you noted he doesn't have one set screenwriting partner that he works a lot with. So who's a screenwriting partner you'd like to see him work with? More Sorkin. I'm, <laughs> I'm joking, but like I, but like we, we've already said, he Fincher makes Sorkin better, and I like Sorkin, so of course I want that. Mm-hmm. But my 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 low key pick um, that I think especially after last year's film, The Last Duel, is Nicole Holofcener, mm-hmm. who um, is like kind of a, a legend of, of indie American filmmaking, um, <laughs> makes a lot of films with titles that f- feel like you can't distinguish the, between them. Like saying the name of the film is not going to get you far enough to identify it, <laughs> but they're like, they're movies predominantly about women, predominantly about like family and relationship and, um, that they're just they're deeply funny and deeply personal, but she can also uh, she she's proven she she was brought in by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, uh, which rises them in my estimation that they even know who she is um, to write 
the third section of Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, where that movie, it's the same story told from three perspectives. Mm -hmm. One was written by Damon, one was written by Affleck. Um, and the third, where the where Jodie Comer is the, the point of view character, and we finally get like her truth, um, they they ask Nicole Hoffsener to write it. And she does an incredible job, even though she's like totally outside her wheelhouse doing a period film. Um, so yes, I am treating this lightning round as my pitch for Fincher making his most woman-centric film yet. So now we've got Nicole Hoffsener directing or writing a script for woman talking, starring at least Kate Blanchett, Kira Knightley, and Gwyneth Paltrow. And I think I think it would work. I think it would work. <laughs> oh my god, we like someone pick this up. <laughs> I love this. Um so mine is definitely a very like I wanna say normie pick. Uh it's it's my basic bitch pick though. Um I would be like this is a morbid curiosity. What would Fincher look like with Charlie Kaufman? Um, I know. I it's know it's, like yeah. It's a little basic. I see what you mean, but it's but it also makes so much sense because Charlie Kaufman, um, he can like one thing that David Fincher does is he brings I don't want to say mundane stories, but he really he really works within reality, and he really you know like you said he's he's not done a lot that really leaves that, and I think. Charlie Kaufman is really good at creating stories that work within the reality we have, but then just like this different thing exists or whatever. And he's very good at surreal reality. And so I would love to see how David Fincher um, would apply this kind of, I, I don't even know how you describe his style because it's not hyper-realistic, but hyper-grounded style in Charlie Kaufman. I don't know. It's It could be a disaster, but it could also be kind of good. <laughs> agreed yeah agreed um so i feel bad because i think we pretty much both answered this in in our earlier recording but swedish girl with the dragon tattoo or fincher finchers yeah but the swedish one is great like, yeah it's just it's not fincher i feel bad it is great but fincher gets everything he gets the casting he gets the pacing he gets like the um like i, I know that it's not him doing the art direction of it all but uh damn he makes it look pretty um Okay, so let's say that Trent Reznor never got into the movie scoring business. Who's another composer or musician that you'd like to see him work with? Uh, so one has already come up, uh, Johnny Greenwood, yeah. uh, especially after uh, the, the, the one-two punch of, um, of uh, uh, Power of the Dog and um, the Princess Diana movie, which Spencer, that's Spencer. what it was called. Um, He's one pick that I think it would he would fit right in. Uh, Ludwig Göransson, who is ha, has been working with lots of people, but he's Ryan Coogler's main guy. Um, they would both make good picks. But I also love Fincher's music videos, and the Ooh. this is the collab I want to see. I want to see Fincher and Kendrick Lamar get together and do something because Lamar has also like been a music supervisor on uh, a couple of films, and I just. I, I think there would be genius there. When you watch um, Fincher direct Justin Timberlake's suit and tie video, and then you watch um, the video for All Right, there is there is something that those two guys could do that I think would be really, really special. Yeah. Um, so I tried to kind of strike, like, he's never going to work with a Hans Zimmer type. You know, that's, that's Nolan's playground. Um, and I, I do feel like he... 
I love the idea of him and Kendrick Lamar because he is really good at working with very contemporary guys. So on that note, I actually thought of, um, I know there's a lot of like nepotism involved in this and stuff, but Phineas, uh, Billy Eilish's brother, um, he has done a couple movie scores now. Most recently he did what I think is a really good movie, The Fallout, which is probably not going to get as much attention as it should because it is a movie about teens. Um, but he, uh, it's, um, yeah, look it up after. It's an amazing movie. Uh, but I think it's on Crave. Um, okay. And he, and I, I don't know, I think Billie Eilish has gotten into the movie composing thing herself as well. And they collaborate together. But Phineas, his score for the fallout is, um, it's dream poppy a little bit without okay. being... But not bubble, like dream pop, I'll say dreamy, less on the pop side. It's not so bubblegummy. It's a little bit techno. It's a little bit ambient. And it's the kind of thing that is pleasant but unsettling. And like I said, Fincher is someone who can make a scene of coding look unsettling. Um, and so I think that would be like, I don't think he's ever going back to, uh, you know, to paraphrase forgetting Sarah Marshall, ominous tones like uh, like in Seven. Um, so I would love to see him work with Phineas. I know like there are rich kids, they're, they're a rich person's kids or whatever, but that's what everyone in Hollywood is. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what's an existing IP you'd like to see him adapt or a classic movie you'd like to see him remake? So like Hitchcock is the obvious choice for for a remake because like fincher has spoken ad nauseum about how influential hitchcock is for him mm-hmm. um but i have my proclivities too and i want to see him make a noir western i want to see him like pick up the oxbow incident or the tin star or basically anything that anthony mann directed in the 50s mm-hmm. and like give us a really dark ass western mm-hmm. um because that's one thing that like we know that he has the he has the eye for it because of the end of seven, like mm-hmm. the end of seven, like with the, the, like out in the desert with the power lines, he has the eye to do a Western. I just want to see him actually take that step. And I think there, there are some really interesting noir Westerns from the fifties that would be really cool to see him uh, give a, take a shot at. Yeah. It, so I historically have been more into spaghetti Westerns um, mainly because the guy I dated when I was at Laurier, that was what he was into. And I I want to say I feel like Spaghetti Westerns were having not a resurgence, but I don't know, that's what every film bro in 2010, 2011 was into was Spaghetti Westerns. And it was obnoxious. Yeah. And then, well, I really loved that that was when the Coen brothers went and remade True Grit and kind of like, hey, American Westerns rule too. But so I... I did initially say Hitchcock, and then when you said Hitchcock was the obvious choice, I'm like, oh, erase that note. <laughs> now, I went for Sorry. something just as, I don't want to say obvious, but um, just as mainstream. But um, so I have been doing a deep dive of a lot of Frank Capra movies lately because I'm prepping for, um, I'm prepping for an episode on Jimmy Stewart. And of all the Frank Capra movies, um, I mean... I'm sure you could do a David Fincher take on It's a Wonderful Life and it would probably be profoundly upsetting. But no, I think Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which is, uh, you know. That is a brilliant take. That is that is a brilliant oh, idea. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh, I don't want to say it hasn't aged well. Um, it's, you know, it's not, 
I don't want to say it's not as timeless as other Frank Capra movies, but it's more um, more of its time than other Frank Capra movies. Whereas something like um, It's a Wonderful Life, we've been able to go back and say like, oh my God, this is actually like such a socialist movie or whatever. And um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington doesn't have that kind of eternal freshness. Um, but I feel like because like... I don't want to rewrite history about House of Cards and pretend that House of Cards was actually bad because it did become bad and then the Kevin Spacey of it all. I I think Fincher is very good at political drama. And yeah. I think Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, what would modernize it a little bit more is to just, you know, not make the character so cardboardish and actually create some real angst and people like not having anyone that you want to root for. And uh, yeah. I, th- I think it's a great pick. Uh, okay. It also gives me a movie to recommend to you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a movie from the 50s from a director named Otto Preminger. It's sitting somewhere behind me on my, my uh, movie shelf because I love it. It's called Advise and Consent. And it's ostensibly, it stars Henry Fonda is a uh, a man who may or may not have been a communist years ago who has been nominated by the president to be the new secretary of state that is about what the first like 45 minutes of the movie is about and then it's about all of the machinations among the different senators like power broking power brokering over both what like the, the communist ties but also like are there senators that people have baggage over because they may or may not have uh not necessarily been communist, but uh, done unsavory things. Ooh. It is, it is a really like, it, it's a really beautiful political drama. It was actually no, actually my initial take for for this question. Cool. Um, but like, no one knows about this movie, and I just yeah, I, I love I, it, and I think you would really dig it. I don't think I've ever heard that title, not even in like my film classes or anything. That the way you describe it almost sounds um, inter- structurally like the Place Beyond the Pines, which I was just rewatching last night. Um, how like. Just like halfway through, it's like, it's a different movie now. Um, and uh, yeah. sometimes I forget that I used to just like work with Ryan Gosling's sister as she sat like 10 feet away from me. I think that's really a thing I forget way too often. Um, that's so wild. She's really nice. Um, okay, so what do you think is Fincher's most underrated movie? Uh, I've already said Mank, uh, but I'm going to put it out there for Alien 3 again. Um, I think that uh, as much as he wants to disown it, it's got an amazing Sigourney Weaver performance in it mm-hmm. that like we don't give enough credit to to that. Um, the actor who plays Tywin Lannister plays a doctor in it and he's great. Um, the, like, th- the cast, and, and this is what we've been saying the whole time, the cast makes it so, so good. Yep. Uh, yeah. So this is weird because I don't think the movie is by itself underrated. However, I feel it, is underrated as a Fincher movie, um, Panagram. Because, like, I think it gets readily dismissed as being, like, a popcorn movie or whatever, and it's very short and whatever, and, like, you look back and it doesn't land on any, like, best of 2002 lists and stuff. I feel like if it were, if the exact same film were made 10 years later, or, like, David Fincher's Panagram, people would have gone crazy for it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think is his most overrated movie? It's Fight Club. Like yeah. I love, I love Fight Club. I love how gay that movie is. It's so fucking gay, and I love it. <laughs> but like, film bros have absolutely ruined Fight Club to a certain extent. And yeah. also, it's just like 
the rest of his movies are so good that Ooh. like Fight Club often being put as his like it, it, it's the most Fincher it's probably the most seen Fincher movie at this point because of its cult yeah. status and it doesn't it doesn't deserve that over Seven and the Social Network and Zodiac and yeah. Gone Girl and Trick and Tattoo and and I think besides Seven it is most people's gateway to Fincher um, yeah. So I agree with you. I also say would say that Helena Helena Bonham Carter is incapable of being in a movie that is not so fucking gay. She's in so much gay shit, and I love that. That's true. Um, now that said, I want to circle back to something you said. It's not his most overrated. However, I do feel like the rehabilitation that we have given to Zodiac gets a little that that pudding is a little over egged. Um, there's there's flaws with it beyond flaws like you mentioned like the the criminal underusage of Chloe Sevigny. I also think that Robert Downey Jr is not great at it. I think he is his I know, I'm sorry. That's a spicy I, take. I think he, maybe it's because I've seen so much fucking Tony Stark now that I'm just like, oh, he's just doing his RDJ thing. And I think he I don't know, he doesn't bring as much to his character as Jake Gyllenhaal does, and so it feels like they're in two different movies. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's a not great pace movie. I think I think there's so much about it that is so good, but I think when people say, oh, it's actually his best movie, and oh, it's, it's one of the best of 2007, I'm like, no, it is not the best of 2007 when you've got No Country and There Will Be Blood and, I, and A Serious Man, and I still can't decide which of those is best. Um, so yeah, the the official answer is Fight Club, but I'm kind of done to sleep on on Zodiac. Yeah, my my roommate would have killed me if I'd said Zodiac as his most overrated. Like, um, <laughs> in fact, he he threatened to when I mentioned it. Um, but I agree. Like, between the the it being just a, a smidge too long and the underuse of Chloe Sevigny, uh, it just. It drops it down just enough to say it's over, it's overrated. Yeah, well, I think people have an obsession with rehabilitating things. You know, like you always see on the inter- internet, people love playing the whole like this was the villain of the movie, but this was the actual villain. People love retroactively defending things, and I think sometimes that need to be contrarian can make people like can just blind people a little bit to. I mean, there's no objective reality because it's art. It's none of it is objective, but. Um, I will also say, though, that Zodiac is the perfect real-life crime thing for David Fincher to direct because, like I said, he's really good at endings that don't feel resolved. And, you know, what better what better case than someone who, at the time, had not been identified? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, mm. So now, we've reached the peak! So when, Mint, do you think David Fincher as a director peaked for you? It's the social network. It's like, I, it's, I've lived with that movie for 12 years now. I've seen it more times than I can count. And I think it just, I, I, because of the last line, there's a lot of people that I've seen, and these are the critics I've argued with, that say it has uh, aged at least a little poorly because of how monstrous Mark Zuckerberg has become. Mm-hmm. I take the exact opposite stance. I think that it's only gotten more relevant at the intersection of oh, masculinity totally. and technology. It's just, oh, it's, I, I, but like, really, I hope that he's got more to come. Like we know that he's got a film uh, that he's making the killer. I think it's called. Yes. And he's still like, he, we've got another two, three decades with this guy. And I just want I hope I hope that his peak is yet to come. 
Yes. Um, I think it's interesting about the social networking because I've seen probably an equal number of arguments that say, and this was at the time, this was before Facebook completely ruined humanity. Um, but I've seen people say both that it's too hard on Zuckerberg and that it's too easy on Zuckerberg, um, which I think says that people didn't get uh, what the criminally unlikable Jesse Eisenberg was going for. Um, Absolutely. I have to agree with you about the social network, but I would also say I love that the social network is so close in time to Girl with the Dragon Tattoo because I want to say like that 18 months or whatever it was between those, that was Fincher's absolute like, he was a shining star. He had really come into his own. And also, it must have been a really nice personal peak because between that and that was only a couple of years removed from Benjamin Button, seeing his uh, movies finally get the payoff in terms of award nominations. I know awards are not yeah. everything, but it just felt like he was finally getting recognized as a prestige director. So I think, yeah, like you said, the 2010s it- were nonstop home runs for him. It's the moment when, like, other when it became clear that he is, um, he's kind of his generation's Martin Scorsese in that, um, he's a filmmaker that every other filmmaker in the industry respects. Mm-hmm. Like the the way that, um, in at the twenty nineteen Oscars, the way that like Spike Lee and Bong Joon Ho and like everyone around was just looking at at, at Marty and like, like the the deep love they have for him. Um, Fincher is starting to get that and that's when it started that it was like oh this is like this is someone that is a master of their craft and we we need to like put some respect on his name (laughs) Mm -hmm. so if you were to recommend just three Fincher movies to a friend who would they be seven gone girl and the social network Uh, I think you get kind of the gamut of uh, of where he goes um, with like the the really like simple crime uh the the, uh, serial killer film you get the movie about industry and masculinity and you get friggin rosamund pike just Mm. (laughs) like you you get that role and uh yeah that's the trio i normally try to have like a different trio when i ask this question from my uh from my guests however i think i would say the exact same thing you could interchange gone girl with girl with the dragon tattoo because it gives you similar things you know female lead Great montage of her giving herself an impromptu makeover in a tiny bathroom. Um, uh, except that my personal rule of thumb is that I never recommend Girl with the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo to strangers because of the incredibly brutal rape scenes. Um, so that's just uh, that's just a personal rule is that I never recommend that one to strangers unless they know what they're getting into. So I think I'm the exact same as you on this. So then, for you, how big is the gap between the best of Fincher and the worst of Fincher? it's a tough question because like there is a gap like there there are movies of his that i don't like as much benjamin button being kind of top of that list but every time i go back like i I described the game earlier the game is so interesting because it's about a rich man being forced to interact with poor people and how that is like one of the secret benefits of being rich we don't like to talk about as a society benjamin button is this fascinating character study where Pitt and Blanchett and uh, and Taraji P. Henson and Marshall Ali, like just give these incredible performances that are like in a fantasy world, but also like their emotions are incredibly real. Mm-hmm. So there is a gap and it is big, but it's only because his highs are so very high, not because his lows are so very low. Yeah. So 
with the last episode I recorded, which I recorded just on Monday, I kind of found that the way I think about gaps is if their best is an A plus, and I would say his A plus is the social network, you know, what is his worst? And I was like, you know, with Taylor Swift, I said, like, if Evermore is an A plus, you know, for me, uh, like her debut is a C plus or, or uh, reputation is a C plus. For Fincher, I actually don't think I would put any of his films, even the ones I dislike, into C+. I would say, like, at best, no. Benjamin Button is B. And when I think about it, like, what are your assignments that get you Bs in school? It's the ones that bring up a lot of good things, but just don't feel complete. And, you know, so, like, Benjamin Button has beautiful performances, but stylistically, tonally, in terms of consistency, it is lacking. Or, um, like... Fight Club, which, um, you know, interesting characters, but, you know, this, I mean, the script is not David Fincher's fault, but the script kind of sucks. Um, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, so I don't, th- I think it's, there is a gap, like you said, I don't think it's actually that big. And I think he has a lot in that A plus to A range. And then, you know, you could say like maybe Seven Gone Girl, those are uh, like, panic room are kind of getting into the a minus b plus but that's that's really it like i don't think his worst is even a crappy movie you know I, I even mank i you know like i i went out of mank thinking i don't want to rewatch that again i'm like no actually i could i could totally rewatch that um all right Absolutely. so so it's we've come to our goodbye um and that about does it for this episode of Peak Show. And I want to thank Vint for joining me once again on this on this podcast. It's always so much fun to talk movies with you. Um, I feel like I need to bring you on for something besides movies at some point because you're more than just a, a movie a movie fan. If you ever decide to do a Rush episode, like call me because I like. I think I did just make a joke a couple days ago about I don't do a Rush episode uh, since they're officially done making music. So, um, well, before you before we go, I know you are a sane and well-adjusted person who often takes Twitter breaks because you're a sane and well-adjusted person. But uh, let everyone know where they can find and follow you and, you know, your writing or anything if you want them to follow you at all. (laughs) Yeah, my my deal with myself for this year to become a, a more sane and healthy person because I wouldn't I would put myself up in that uh, in that category was I would only use Twitter when I had something to put there, mm-hmm. um, which for me was like announcing. So like, I'll be back on Twitter promoting the show that you can <laughs> bet your ass on that um, or when I'm presenting at conferences. Uh, but it also forced me to like reopen a blog. And so if you go to my Twitter page, which is at Mintiford, M-Y-N-T, uh, A-F-O-R-D, um, you will see links to my blog uh, where I'm just, whatever I whatever gets to like a thousand words that I would be okay giving a B plus to if I got it from a student, that's what goes there. Just the things that would otherwise be Twitter threads. I'm pretty happy with the stuff that's up there, but it's, it's intermittent. It's just a way for me to practice writing and to... Uh, prepare for things like this where I get to have such great conversations with uh, with wonderful hosts like you, Brie. Well, thank you so much. I, I personally love reading your stuff because I am a person, you know, I've taken, I've only taken film studies at the undergraduate level. And so I always worry that I'm going to be in over my head and in movie discussions. And I think you just have a really amazing way of bridging that gap um, and keeping me like 
I'll admit there are certain ideas you talk about. I'm like, oh, I don't understand. But I care enough that I'm like, I'm going to Google this and understand it because you write about everything in such a really like meaningful, like you can really see your passion for the craft in it. So I love, I love reading your work. Um, so as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde. Really loving this ride that we're on in season two. Thank you so much for listening to us. We're coming back at you with so much more great content this season. We've got episodes coming up on Matt Stone and Trey Parker, The Babysitter's Club, the aforementioned Jimmy Stewart, and more. You can also look through our back catalog for episodes on other uh, probably lesser filmmakers such as Judd Apatow and uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Or, you know, if you're also into movies starring insane people, we've got a whole Mike Myers episode. And we've got a whole month's worth of episodes on The Simpsons, and a whole month's worth of episodes coming up on Star Wars. So you can follow me on Twitter at Breganism, which is like veganism with a B-R-E-E. You can also follow this podcast, Peak Show, at Peak Show Pod on Twitter. Don't forget to rate and review us. Um, it's really great to boost the visibility of the show. You can also rate on Spotify if you're not an Apple podcast user, so give us five stars or go to hell. Special thanks to Jared Daly for our show logo and all of its art. Thanks to Jack Dump for composing our theme music, and thank you for listening. I've been Bree Rohde, and remember, in an insane world, a sane man must have been insane.